In one verse, he brings together the most mind-blowing doctrine that we have, arguably, about Christ. Namely, he was the God-man. And you can stop right there and just think about the man that saved you being fully God and fully human. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part two of Blessed Assurance, a three-part series from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor's text is the Apostle John's first letter written to a group of churches late in the first century after he had written his beloved Gospel of John. It's in chapter five, verse 13, part of his letter's closing statement, where he spells out his reason for writing this letter to these brothers and sisters. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Pastor Paul shows how the assurance theme is woven throughout the letter and how the apostle calls out antichrists, the false teachers who spread confusion and doubt among these early churches with their heresy. It may be that these outsiders taught that absolute perfection was possible even though they questioned the humanity of Christ. Could this be why John insists upon that these believers walk in the light, having been cleansed from their sins through the blood of Jesus? Here's part two of Blessed Assurance. God has given us means of grace. God has given us many channels by which he imparts grace to us, by which we can uh, feed our faith. The three primary means of grace are his word, prayer, and fellowship of the saints. There are many means of grace. So a Christian biography is a means of grace. We read it, we feel edified, encouraged. A Christian conference would be a means of grace. A Christian song would be a means of grace. But the three primary means of grace, I always think about Hebrews chapter 10, and that's something of the theological center of that letter. And there the author says, let us draw near with confidence, that's prayer, He's let us hold fast the confession of faith, arguably that is the word, and let us consider how to stir one another up to good works. That's fellowship. And we see this pattern all the way through the New Testament. The primary means of grace that God has given us by which we feed our faith is the word, prayer, and fellowship with the saints. It's not rocket science. It's really simple. If you're in any counseling scenario with me, well, first of all, I apologize. I'm sorry that it's come to this, that you've had to come to me for counsel. Uh, There are more competent counselors out there. If you're in a counseling scenario with me, and after you've given your presentation issue, see, I can do this, the presentation issue, the counselors call it. This is what the issue is. If things aren't going right in your life, almost guaranteed, the first three questions I'm going to ask you are, tell me what your Bible reading looks like, tell me what your prayer life looks like, and tell me what your church attendance looks like. Because almost guaranteed, if things are coming off the rails in your life, you are neglecting the means of grace that God has given to you. We have to be diligent and disciplined to pursue these means of grace. We're distracted. We're a distracted people. We have got to the stage somehow in our society where we don't think we can do life anymore unless we have a small computer in our pocket. Nearly everyone in the room right now has a small computer attached to them. 
And it's almost like, I can't leave the house unless it's there. And as it vibrates or makes a noise, we're enslaved to it and we have to check it. We have to check it. And then there's the emails at work and, and all of the busyness of life just means we're a really distracted people. And we have lost, I'm convinced, the, the Christian discipline of meditation, sustained meditation, to sit with God's word open, to read it, not for five minutes and not for 10 minutes, but to engage with the text over a, a period of time, to consider the truth that's being told to you, to turn it over in your mind, and to respond to God in prayer based upon that truth, to pray the truth back to God and to thank him for that truth. That is, I call it contemplative prayer or meditative prayer. It combines those first two means of grace, the word and prayer, and it feeds your soul. Just try opening 1 John, clear some time in your schedule. Think about that first paragraph. John shows us that which was from the beginning being the eternality of Christ and therefore invoking his deity. And then immediately in the same verse, he moves on to that which we have seen and heard and touched with the hands being the incarnation of Christ invoking his humanity. In one verse, he brings together the most mind-blowing doctrine that we have arguably about Christ, namely he was the God-man. And you can stop right there and just think, about the man that saved you being fully God and fully human. And you can just turn that over in your mind and you can praise God because when you start to tease it out, if either of those things is not true, the gospel collapses. The second he is not fully God, the gospel collapses. And the same is true of the, the fact that he was fully man. And you can feed your soul on that one verse of scripture, be nourished, feed your faith, understanding that as you make that a discipline in your life, assurance starts to grow. Well, that's the first two means of grace, uh, and that's really my exhortation to, to be in the Word and to be in prayer seriously. And then the third would be fellowship with the saints, and I just want to encourage you, when the church doors are open, just resolve to be here. You may not have seen it in the text because we just went over it so quickly. John brings in the concept of fellowship with him and then says that our fellowship is with God and the Son, the Father and the Son, and he's hinting at there this aspect of our fellowship that I don't think we can truly fully understand, namely that when God's people gather together, the Godhead is made manifest. Jesus Christ is not here with us in the flesh. And yet in some kind of way that we can't fully understand, when God's people gather together, Jesus Christ is made manifest amongst us. So when the church doors are open, you just commit to showing up for so many reasons, but one of the reasons is because you understand how significant it is when God's people get gathered together for your own soul. Back in, in the UK, if you go into really old churches, the pews are aligned facing each other, and it was for that very reason. They understood the value of Christian fellowship, and so they would sing in the service to each other. And there is an edification that goes on in your heart that you're probably not even aware of when it's happening. And I know life is busy and there's all these things on the calendar and it's so easy to just not drive back down for evening service. But when you put the gathering of the church in the context of what's going on with your own soul and the nature of your assurance, you just commit to being here because it's one of the primary means of grace that God has given you. So what does John do in the first paragraph? He 
essentially encourages these believers to pursue a larger view of Christ, to feed their faith. Let's move on and see a slightly different angle, another way in which he attacks the problem of assurance. So 1, 5 and following. This is the message which we heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, by contrast, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just in order to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My children, these things I write to you in order that you might not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a supporter, a sponsor with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is our propitiation for our sin. And not only ours, but also for the whole world. And we'll stop there. The structure of this passage is, is relatively straightforward. John lays out a, a thesis statement at the very beginning. God is light. He says, that's the message that we heard. And by inference, I, I argue that it's a, a light that has invaded your heart. That's the message that has come to you, been received. God's light has invaded your heart. And he says there are, there are ramifications, there are implications from that invasion of light. If it truly has flooded your heart, then it changes the way you live. And what he does structurally, he lays out three claims, it would seem, of the false teachers. Three things they were saying. They were saying that they have fellowship with him, but they walk in darkness. That was one of their claims. And he's just showing how ludicrous that is. He's saying, can you just see how those that have left your group, there's no way they're in union with Christ, because look at the claim and how it doesn't match up to the thesis statement. And then what he does is he inserts three opposite truths. He says, but this is what I see to be true of you. So here's the crazy claim, and here's what I see to be true of you. He's trying to encourage them. And so he says, for example, in verse 7, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And the, the understanding is that John is, is not trying to you know, sift out anyone left in the congregation that's not truly a Christian, which is so often how we use First John, all these tests to say, okay, I'm going to weed some of you out. He's saying, as an encouragement, there's those that have left, and this is what they look like, and and the ones remaining, you know this to be true, and I know it to be true of you, that you walk in the light, and you have fellowship with him, and, and Jesus' blood cleanses you from all sin. And he does that three times. Now again, there's so much we could say about this text. One thing I want to draw your attention to is how for every encouragement, John makes reference to, either subtly or, or more explicitly, the cross of Christ. So verse 7, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. What is that walking in the light? It's not perfection, because then he goes on to say, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. How does that happen? We understand it's by virtue of the cross. 
next encouraging statement, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. Again, the cross is in view there. And then the last encouragement, the the chapter division is not actually that helpful here. Chapter 2 and verse 2, where the section really ends, we have an advocate. We have a, a supporter, a sponsor standing beside the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is our propitiation for our sin. Very clearly, the cross of Christ in view. So let's think about what John is doing strategically, writing a letter. I want to give you assurance. The first thing I'm going to do is set forth Jesus Christ, because what you need to do is feed your faith, primarily understanding that assurance grows out of faith. Consider the man that saved you. Secondarily, he moves his argument just a, a few degrees and says, consider the Christ that saved you, especially the crucified Christ and the doctrines that flow out of the cross. As you seek to feed your faith in order to nurture your assurance, of primary concern should be the cross of Christ and the doctrines that flow out of that cross. So Sinclair Ferguson talks in his book about the doctrines of regeneration, justification, adoption, and union with Christ. Maybe the four most central doctrines that are rooted in the cross. Regeneration, justification, adoption, and union with Christ. Now, here's the danger, is that we get so complacent because we hear the gospel preached every week, and we hear that language so often, and it's just Christian talk, and we lose a sense of what God has accomplished for us at the cross. You need to pursue these doctrines. Regeneration. There was a time when your heart was stone, and it didn't beat, and it was inclined away from God. You hated God. And what God did, according to his grace, not because of anything you had done and not because of anything that you would go on to do, you were listed as an enemy of his. He opened up your chest. He took out that lump of stone. And he put in a flesh-beating heart that in its DNA loves God. He gave you a heart which intrinsically loves God. And that heart beats to the glory of Christ. And though sin remains, and though you still make mistakes, and so there are many ways in which you dishonor the Lord because there is sin just dwelling in the flesh, you have fundamentally a different heart that now is not set against God as an enemy and a hater of him, but now is in love with him. And he did that for you. And that is the doctrine of regeneration. But beyond that, beyond that surgery that was performed on you, there was also at one time a court hearing. This court gathered, and your name was at the center that day. It was the concern of the court that day to think about you and your standing with God. And the angelic hosts were gathered, and there was nothing hidden. Every sin that you had ever committed was known. The inclination of your heart as a hater of God was known. And as the angelic host looked to God the Father who is in the judgment seat, they await for the announcement of his verdict. And it is so obvious. There's no one in the room that's that's uncertain of the way this is going to go. They're not uncertain because everything's known about your wicked state. And then God says, innocent. 
the judge pronounces the verdict and he says, accepted. He says, this one gets to go free. And maybe that day there's, there's one of the angelic hosts that, that just wants to inquire further and says, but how can this be? We know everything about this one. And he says, it's because I crushed my son, my only son, I crushed him. And so there's nothing left now. There's no wrath left for this one. In fact, the judge goes further and says, not only is he forgiven, not one offense is going to be counted against him. He says, actually, he's gloriously righteous. And again, this, this question this says, but how can that be? And he says, well, when I crushed my son, I took off his robe of righteousness. And I actually put it on this one. And so he stands justified. And beyond that regeneration, justification, the court's dismissed and the angelic hosts leave and, and you're left standing there just in absolute disbelief at what happened. And you turn to leave and then you hear, you hear God. And he calls out to you before you leave and the funny thing is, he doesn't call out your name, and he doesn't call out court attendee. The thing that you hear him call is, my son, my daughter. And you're confused because you know you're the only one left there. And you turn around and he says, look, you're forgiven, you're justified, you're declared righteous, and you're in my family now. You're in my family. From now on, would you address me as father? Would you come to me as a son, as a daughter? And whatever experience you've had of an earthly father, just know that I will never let you down. And then, beyond that, he says one more thing. I've actually knit your soul together with your brother, Jesus Christ. And now, he, being the king of the world, you are in union with him, and any benefit that comes by virtue of who he is, it will overflow into your life. You know, he's going to come back and he's going to reign on earth one day. And because now I've knit your soul together with him, you're going to reign with him. And on and on and on and on. Regeneration justification, adoption, union with Christ. These are the primary truths that flow out of the cross. And we have to pursue them. We have to give our attention to them. Here's where I would argue that we all struggle with assurance. You came this morning maybe as someone who says, you know what, Praise the Lord, I don't struggle with assurance. Maybe you've been confident of your salvation from day one. And of course, don't misunderstand me, we're grateful for that blessing. But the problem, I think, is that we often think about assurance in a, in a very... We think about it in the wrong way. We ask the wrong question. So somebody comes to me and says, I'm struggling with assurance. What do you mean by that? Maybe they would say, you know, I just don't know if I'm saved. I just don't know that my sins are forgiven. I'm just not sure that I'm going to heaven. 
we think about assurance in a very small way, and I think this comes about through a, a reduction of the gospel itself that happened over the course of the last hundred years. What you see with primarily huge evangelistic rallies, preaching the gospel, wonderful works, and I'm sure many people genuinely say through those. But what happened over time is that the gospel was reduced to simply a transactionary affair. Put your faith in Christ, sins are forgiven, and we're good. And of course, forgiveness of sins is the entrance into the gospel. The gospel is far bigger than we can get our heads around. Forgiveness of sins is one aspect of it that gets us entrance into a relationship with God. And I think not that I've seen anyone kind of tease this relationship out. As we reduce the gospel over the course of the last hundred years, so also that's affected our understanding of assurance. And so now we ask the question, how can I know that I'm going to heaven? How can I know that I'm saved? My sins are forgiven. And we would do far better to ask the question, what does it mean to be in union with Christ? What does it mean to be in a relationship with God? And here is where I would argue all of us, whether we understand it or not, struggle with assurance. By that, I mean there is not one person in this room who has fully explored the riches of what it means to be in a relationship with God. There is none of us that fully understands the glory of being in union with Jesus Christ. And though you may not doubt your salvation and where you're going to be on the last day, we all of us must pursue a fuller knowledge of our relationship with Christ. Understanding that that will bring about more joy in worship, more zeal in service, humility in fellowship, and on and on it goes. John says, by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one that says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, but whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God has been perfected. By this we know that we are in him, the one who says that he abides in him ought to walk just as this one walked. Beloved, I'm not writing you a new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning, and the old commandment is the word that you heard. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is fading and the light is, the true light is already shining. The one who says that he's in the light and hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one that loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. The one who hates his brother is in the darkness. He walks in the darkness and he doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. The cross of Christ is very much visible in John's letter. And Pastor Paul pointed us to the regeneration, justification, and union with Christ flowing out of it. Because of Christ's cross, believers are granted three primary means of grace, God's Word, prayer, and fellowship with the saints. Prior to our regeneration, our hearts were made of stone and were inclined away from God. But with Jesus' blood, we have new hearts beating with love for God and the glory of Christ. Do you want to know more about Christ's power to bring new life? Come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. Press broadcast, and there you'll find a free audio archive of Pastor Paul's practical and timely messages on Jesus Christ. 
Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss and a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Did you know you can be part of bringing this life-changing Bible-based message to thousands of others as a listener-supporter? Your financial gift makes you a part of what God is doing through this outreach ministry to share the good news of Jesus. To make your gift of any size, go to TimelessTruthToday.org and select Donate. Thank you for your consideration. Tomorrow, we continue with part three in our series, Blessed Assurance, when Pastor Paul examines our need for obedience to Christ made possible by God's amazing grace. That's tomorrow. Hope you can join us then. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.